Now let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Tonight I'm going to talk about the five aggregates and in particular about the aggregate of materiality. One of the most striking features of Buddhism is the fact that it denies the existence of an I, self or ego which exists permanently and inherently. The Buddha said that there is no such a thing as an self or an I which exists independently. What exists is a combination of mental and physical processes which are in a constant flux. A so-called person is nothing but the process of mental and physical phenomena. I, or a being, a person, is just a conventional term to refer uh, such a being. On a conventional level, we have men and women, kids and old people, cats and dogs, elephants and snakes. So these words are just used to conveniently describe beings which consist of mental and physical phenomena. To believe in a solidly and permanently existing ego or self is like the belief of a child who takes a rainbow to be solidly existing. Out of his or her ignorance, the child doesn't know that a rainbow is a mere illusion created by some rays of light and drops of water. And so people blinded by ignorance take a so-called person to be endowed with an indestructible self or ego. For example, when I was small, when there was a rainbow on the sky, I always wanted to go to that place where the rainbow was touching the earth and then climb up the rainbow. But unfortunately, I never made it to that place where the rainbow was touching the earth. If we want to understand reality, then we have to move away from concepts and look beyond these concepts. 
So when we leave these concepts or words or labels behind, what do we find there? Or when we drop the words, when we drop the labels, the concepts, what remains? The Buddha was very well aware that we can perceive things on two different levels. One is the conventional level, that's conventional reality. And there we have things as persons, animals, trees, mountains, rivers, flowers, and so on. But then there is also another level, an ultimate level, and there we find ultimate realities. And ultimate realities are mental and physical phenomena. I will speak about these um, uh, later. And we also have Nirvana, the unconditioned, as an ultimate reality. So to solve the riddle of how to achieve happiness and how to become free from suffering, it is not enough to see and understand conventional reality. This riddle can only be solved when ultimate reality is seen and understood. So for example, the concept person is not an ultimate reality in the sense that it couldn't be further reduced. There is no intrinsic nature to be found in what we call a person. This concept a person can further be reduced to a male person or a female person or it could be reduced to head, chest, arms, trunk, legs and so on. It could be reduced to hairs, muscles, blood, urine and so on. So when these conventional realities are carefully observed then we can eventually come to see the realities which lie beyond these uh, conventional realities, beyond the concepts. And these ultimate realities maintain their intrinsic nature regardless of the constructs that the mind builds around this phenomena. So these ultimate realities exist as the essences of things, but they are very subtle and very profound. An ordinary person with an untrained mind is not able to perceive them. Such a person cannot perceive ultimate reality because his or her mind is too much obscured by concepts. 
And it's these concepts which shape the reality into conventionally defined appearances. So it is only by means of wise or thorough attention that we can uh, come to see beyond these concepts. And then, when we are able to see beyond the concepts, then we have the ultimate realities as the object of our meditation. And so, then they are there for our careful and attentive observation. (coughs) In Vipassana meditation, we are told to carefully and attentively observe the processes in body and mind. When we use these words body and mind, we just use these words or these labels as a means to refer to some ultimate realities. So for example, when we observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, then we should move away from the concepts of abdomen and movement and look very carefully of what we can find uh, without the labels of abdomen or movement. In a minute I will come back to this. So the Buddha's revolutionary discovery was the fact that there is no such a thing as a self or an ego which is everlasting and unchanging. He realized that this self or ego um, were only concepts which could not be found on the level of ultimate reality. The Buddha said that what existed was merely a combination of changing forces which are due to certain causes and conditions. And so what are these combinations um, of changing forces? The Buddha called these the five aggregates. In Pali, it's called the five khandhas. And these aggregates are the aggregate of materiality, then the aggregate of feeling, the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of mental formations, and the aggregate of consciousness. This Pali word, khanda, is understood in the sense of mass or group or aggregate. And the Buddha uh, defined the aggregate of materiality in this way. He said, whatever kind of materiality there is, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, 
far or near. This is called the materiality aggregate. And the same method of, def of definition then is applied to the other four aggregates. So a so-called person consists of these five aggregates, nothing more and nothing less. The aggregate of materiality pertains to form, to matter, to material or physical phenomena. The other four aggregates, they per pertain to the mind or to mental phenomena. Based on our experience in meditation, we have come to see, at least to some degree, that none of these aggregates are everlasting. They are in a constant flux. They are changing all the time. And on top of that, in these aggregates or based upon these aggregates, there is nothing to be found which could be called uh, I or me or self. Nothing that could be the seat for a self, an ego or a me. In the famous Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse of the characteristic of non-self, the Buddha said, the body is not the self, or materiality is not the self, feelings are not the self, perception is not the self, mental formations are not the self, and consciousness is not the self. What the Buddha realized more than 2,500 years ago was the fact that no matter, no uh, uh, physical processes and no mental processes exist permanently. Even the tiniest particles of matter are in a state of constant change. They are constantly appearing and disappearing. Because this is happening with lightning speed, we cannot see that with our ordinary eyes. The Buddha was able to see into such intricate details with the eye of wisdom. Nowadays, at least on the material level, scientists have come to the same conclusion. They found that the so-called indestructible atom does actually not exist. They too found that there are tiny particles of matter which are constantly arising and disappearing constantly coming into existence and going out of existence again. The Buddha realized this fact without any external help, whereas the scientists 
uh, they depend on very costly and sophisticated machines or instruments. The Buddha's discovery led to wisdom and freedom from suffering. Unfortunately, we cannot say this from our modern scientists. Their discoveries are mere intellectual knowledge, which doesn't solve the problem of overcoming suffering and unhappiness. And furthermore, the Buddha understood that in order to understand the whole universe, one, un one only needs to look inside. Within this body and mind, one can discover all that exists in the universe. All the laws of nature, all the laws of the universe can be found within this body and mind because this body and mind are two part of nature. They are two part of the universe. So when we start to look within, we we embark on a journey of discovery that can be quite exciting and thrilling. And this can be even more exciting and thrilling than any adventurous trip in a remote part of this world. When I was still a backpacker, before becoming a nun, I was traveling around the world and I went to some quite remote and faraway places such as the Himalayas and to some very remote uh, places in Indonesia. And what I found there was quite amazing and mind-boggling things that I had never seen or heard before. So these were real adventures, sometimes really exciting and thrilling, at other times they made me quite sad. Originally I set out to discover the world, but then after some time I realized that this was only a pretense. My real yearning was to discover myself. And so, after taking up meditation, I didn't need to travel around the world so much anymore, because I found this spiritual journey was even more exciting and adventurous. Of course, I could not imagine that by just sitting still on the cushion or slowly walking back and forth, one could discover so much. And so then I realized that even the most adventurous and thrilling trip out there in the world was nothing compared to my adventures on the inner journey. So now let's go back to the aggregates. When we are observing our body, this means that we are observing the aggregate 
of materiality, the first of these five aggregates. In Pali, the aggregate of materiality is called Rupa Kanda. And the Pali word for materiality or matter is Rupa. And this word is explained as a derivation from the word Rupati. And this means to be deformed, to be disturbed or knocked about, to be oppressed or broken. So whatever materiality there is, it's, it becomes deformed or broken, can be knocked about. And the Buddha uh, defined uh, material form, Rupa, in the following way. And why, monks, do you say material form or Rupa? It is deformed, therefore it is called material form. And deformed by what? It's deformed by cold, by heat, by hunger, by thirst, by flies, mosquitoes, wind, sunburn, and creeping things. So, Rupa, material uh, phenomena, can be divided uh, in two groups. The first group are the so-called the four material primary elements. And these are earth, water, fire, and air. And so these are the fundamental con constituents, constituents of matter. And these four constituents are inseparable and they are the building blocks of all material substances. And they are the material building blocks for the most tiny particles of matter as well as for massive mountains. And then the second group are the derived material phenomena. And so these are material phenomena derived from or dependent upon the four primary material elements. And these derived material phenomena uh, are 24 in number. So the primary material elements, earth, water, fire, and air, can be compared to the earth. And the derived material phenomena can be compared to the trees and flowers and shrubs that grow in dependence uh, on the earth. So our body 
as well as all other material uh, things, consist mainly of the four primary material elements. As I said, these are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. And, of course, they are not real earth, water, fire, and air, but they stand for the material properties which have characteristics similar to earth, water, fire, and air. And so the earth element has the characteristics of hardness and softness. The water element has the characteristics of fluidity and cohesion. The fire element has the characteristics of heat and cold. And the air element has the characteristics of movement, motion, vibration and support. So the earth element is called Patavidatu in Pali. As I said, hardness and softness are its specific characteristics. So for example, when we touch a hard object, let's say a cup, then we become aware of this hardness and holding a cup in our hand, this really feels firm and solid and hard. Or we might be aware of the touching sensations of the buttocks with the ground, uh, the chair. And also here we might feel the hardness. At other times we might feel softness when we touch a pillow or a woolen shawl. Or while eating, we uh, come across hard and soft food. For example, if we eat some nuts, they seem to be quite hard, and so there needs to be a bit more uh, effort to chew the nuts. When we eat let's say, a soft fruit, then we, needly, we hardly need to make any effort to chew this fruit. And if we eat some ice cream, that almost melts automatically on our tongue, and so uh, no need for chewing. So especially a hard object gives us the impression that it has some real solidity, that it is really firm. That's how we see and perceive it on the conventional level, blinded by our concept about it. On the absolute level, we will find something quite different with the eye of wisdom, we will find that this hard, 
thin or hardness is in no way so solid and firm as he believed. When mindfulness is quite strong and concentration gets deeper, we come to see that there is no solid or firm hardness, but that what we perceive perceive to be hard are actually moments of hardness arising and disappearing. So, looking carefully at this hardness, we will see that it is ever-changing and not two moments of hardness are exactly the same. If we just look with our ordinary eyes, then we won't see this and hardness seems just to be this solid, hard chunk. But when we look at something hard in the course of our meditation with our vipassana eyes and with good mindfulness and strong concentration, then they become like a microscope. Then we can come to see and perceive the ultimate uh, reality of hardness. And the same can be applied to observing softness. So there is no solid substance to be found in the earth element. It has the characteristics of hardness and softness. Although we speak uh, of these specific characteristics of hardness and softness, but there is no permanent or everlasting substance to be found which is hard or soft. Then the water element is called Apu Datu in Pali. And this water element has the specific characteristics of fluidity and cohesion. And it's due to this characteristic of cohesion that the particles in atoms are held together. And it's this characteristic of cohesion that is responsible for the formation of lumps or heaps. For example, if you want to make some bread, you need some flour, water, yeast and salt. And so if you take uh, a bag of uh, flour and pour it on your kitchen table, then this flour will stay there on the kitchen table as a heap of flour. This is due to this characteristic of cohesion. So the the flour particles uh, stick together as a heap. If this characteristic of cohesion would not work, then as you pour the flour out of the bag, 
uh, it would be dispersed uh, all around the kitchen, would be scattered, would be quite a mess. So this water element, it can be experienced, for example, in the walking meditation. Sometimes meditators come to the interview and report that in the walking meditation they felt something sticky on the sole of their foot. When they touched the ground with the foot, they felt as if the foot, the sole of the foot, was sticking to the ground. And even more so when they wanted to lift the foot off the ground again. And because that felt very strange, then they checked the ground, if there was something sticky on the ground, but they could not find anything sticky on the ground. Then they also checked the soles of their feet, the soles um, of the shoes. And again there, they couldn't find anything sticky. And then they might continue with the walking meditation and again they feel this uh, stickiness there. So very strange and they cannot explain it. Such an experience is nothing strange at all. Actually, it's a very natural phenomenon. This stickiness is the characteristic of the water element, namely this cohesion. And so it can be experienced in the walking meditation in such a way. Another way of experiencing the water element is when meditators feel as if sweat is running down their body. If it is not uh, very hot, then it feels very odd to feel drops of sweat running down their body, their chest. And as it feels very odd and strange, then meditators go and touch the skin to see if there was any, any sweat. And to their big surprise, they find that their skin is completely dry. And yet, it felt so real, it felt so real as if a drop of water, sweat, was running down. And again, uh, reporting it in the interview, then uh, teacher will explain that this is manifestation of the water element, namely the characteristic of fluidity like uh, feeling something flowing, something uh, fluid. Then the next element is the so-called fire element. In Pali it's called Tejo Datu. And it has the specific characteristics of heat and cold. So we also could call it the element of temperature. 
And this element can be felt and experienced in the body as heat or cold or warmth. A meditator may feel a sudden outburst of heat in his or her whole body. Waves of heat going from head to toe or just uh, going and moving around in their chest. Or another way when the fire element uh, manifests is when people get angry, especially when the anger becomes strong, then people start to feel hot. Uh, They might even start sweating. And uh, their face may even get uh, very red. Anger, uh, aversion or hatred are likened to a fire that burns within. So the fire element with the characteristic of heat being very obvious and dominant. On the other hand, peace and calm are likened to coolness. And this actually can also be uh, experienced uh, in one's body. For example, when meditators engage in metta meditation, when the feeling of loving-kindness becomes quite strong and powerful, then, because of that strong feeling of metta, the meditator feels very peaceful, very calm. And as a result of that mental calmness, peacefulness, coolness, then also the body starts to feel cool and feels very refreshing. And so it can happen that a meta-meditator may feel like as if the aircon was turned on in a room. Or the meditator uh, feels like a cool breeze blowing. And the last of these four primary elements is the air element. In Pali, this is called Vayo Datu. And the air element has the specific characteristics of movement, motion, vibration, and support. And this air element is most obvious when we practice walking meditation or when we are observing our movements during the daily activities and also when we observe the rising and falling movement of the abdomen in our sitting meditation. At these times we are primarily observing movements as manifestation of the air element. For example, 
in the walking meditation, we have the movements of the feet as our primary object. After some time of practicing meditation, when our mindfulness and concentration are getting stronger, we can be aware of the movement, but we are no longer aware of the shape or the form of our foot. We only know something is moving. Later on, um, we may even completely uh, lose any notion of form or shape of the foot. And sometimes even the form or shape of the whole leg may disappear. And so what we uh, perceive or experience is just movement. We know, perceive movement, and there is the mind which is aware of that movement. So at this moment, the concept foot is no longer present. And so with that, this means that we have moved away from conventional reality towards ultimate reality. And this experience is an, is an important discovery because with this experience our solid and strong belief in an I or a self starts to be shattered. As there is no more foot or leg that walks, it is a bit more difficult to say I am walking. What we experience at that time is rather something like it is walking. Some meditators can be really uh, shocked when they have such an experience. It can be quite terrifying when parts of the body, such as the foot or the leg, uh, disappear and vanish or later on when the form of the whole body uh, disappears. This is so shocking or terrifying because we have been so strongly being identified with this body as I or self or me. When we observe movements, we can also discover that there is not only one movement involved in stretching the arm, for example, but that this movement of stretching out the arm actually consists of many smaller uh, movements. So while stretching out one arm, one's arm, one can see that this movement uh, is made up of maybe two or three or four smaller movements, one after the other arising and disappearing. So then one comes to see that the stretching of the, uh, of the arm consists of a series of smaller broken movements. And likewise, that could be discovered 
while turning the head, um, lifting the foot, or while observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. So later on in the practice, when mindfulness has become really sharp and concentration is quite good, then whatever movement is observed, it is seen as this momentary uh, arising and disappearance of smaller movements. And that happens one after the other in um, rapid succession. At that moment, there are just these movements happening one after the other, and there is the mind which is aware of these movements. So, at such a time, any notion of the abdomen is rising and falling, or the foot is lifted, pushed forward and dropped, or the hand is stretched or bent, such a notion then has completely fallen away. At that time there is no more foot that moves. At that time there is no more, no more abdomen that is rising and falling. But what happens or what is perceived is just movement or um, many tiny little movements arising and disappearing one after the other in quick succession. And so with this the meditator has gone beyond conventional reality. So then the experience is no longer distorted by concepts but this wall of concepts has been broken down and reality is seen as it really is. So then, in other words, this is experiencing ultimate reality. At this point, I want to add a few words about being mindful of the abdominal movement and take it as the primary object in sitting meditation. As I mentioned uh, in one of my talks last week, even Mahasi Sayadaw had doubts about this technique of meditation. Mahasi Sayadaw had a thorough understanding of the Buddhist scriptures as he had studied them for many, many years. So when his meditation teacher told him to observe the abdominal movement, Mahasi Sayadaw was very skeptical because to take the abdominal movement as an object of mindfulness, mindfulness meditation was nowhere explicitly mentioned in the scriptures. The standard practice was anapanasati, which means observing the breath at the tip of the nose. However, Mahasi Sayadaw uh, trusted his teacher 
who was also learned and experienced. And so he put aside his doubts and gave it a try. And to his big surprise, Mahasi Saito found it very helpful and beneficial. His meditation practice went very well and he progressed very quickly. So after that retreat, Mahasi Saito reviewed his experience and also compared it with the scriptures. Having a close look at the Satipatthana Sutta, that is course on the foundations of mindfulness, he discovered that to take the abdominal movement as an object for Vipassana meditation was actually in accordance with the scriptures. In that sutta, in the section on the contemplation of the body, there are a number of methods. Uh, There is a description of a number of methods to observe the body. For example, to be mindful of breathing or to observe the four postures, to observe the body in its different postures of sitting, standing, walking and lying down. Or to observe the bodily parts, like to be aware of the different parts in the body like the 32 parts of the body. And then there was also to observe the elements, like to be mindful of the body in regard to these four primary material elements. And so with this last point, mindfulness of the elements, Mahasi Saito realized that it was in accordance with the Sutta to take the abdominal movement as an object for Vipassana meditation. Because the abdominal movement is a manifestation of the air element and as such it is a valid object. The air element has to be observed. And in the Sutta It does not give any restrictions as to which part of the body should be observed in regard to the elements. It only says that the elements should be observed. And so it is obvious that the nature of the air element manifested through the rising and falling movement of the abdomen should also be observed. Whenever we are mindful of the body, we should look at these different experiences and sensations very carefully. When we are really interested and want to know what is actually happening there, then we will find that so much is going on. With an interested mind, it can be so fascinating to observe each rising and falling movement of the abdomen. 
or it can be so fascinating to be mindful of the lifting, pushing and dropping movement in the walking meditation. Or it can be really fascinating to mindfully observe the stretching out of the arm to reach for the toothbrush, for example. Or with an open heart, it can be so interesting to be aware of the tension in our shoulder. It can be very interesting to uh, observe the pressure in the ankle. It can be very interesting to be mindful of the heat moving through our chest. Or to be aware of a trickling sensation on our cheek. After a while of observing these bodily phenomena, we come to see and understand that none of these elements uh, are everlasting entities. They are ever-changing very swiftly arising and passing again. We also can come to see that in none of these experiences or uh, sensations there is an everlasting substance. You cannot find a solid core. You cannot find an indestructible uh, entity. These processes happen with an incredible speed and that's why with our normal conventional eyes we cannot see them in that way. Only with our vipassana eyes is it possible to perceive these constant and very swift arising and disappearing of material phenomena. All of these four primary elements, water, earth element, water element, fire element and air element, are instantaneous manifestations, rapidly uh, following each other in quick succession. There is no solid or permanent substance in any of these four primary elements. And that is why the body and all material phenomena cannot be to see, cannot, cannot be said to be an everlasting I or self or ego. And it cannot be said to be the seat for an everlasting uh, entity such as a self or an eagle. When we sit in meditation, it can happen that the form of the body disappears. What we then experience is just sensations, sensations of heat or tingling, or cold, stiffness, hardness, itchiness softness, heaviness, 
or lightness. And so when we experience these sensations, this is the natural display of the elements. This is all there is. There is no arm, no leg, no head, no toe. Arm, head, leg, toe are just concepts, labels or words. The elements exist as ultimate uh, realities. However, even as ultimate realities, they do not possess any lasting or permanent substance. They are uh, ultimate realities, but like any other conditioned phenomena, they are subject to change and alteration. So may all of you be able to go beyond the concepts and witness the natural display of the elements. May your understanding grow and may liberation be achieved. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.